0: Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paula has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide: Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. everyone, thank you so much for being such a loyal audience. Today I have two things to talk about very briefly. The first one is that I have created a page on Facebook, it's called Understand Suicide, the same name as the podcast, because I do miss interacting with you, so you can talk to me directly there or even among yourselves, but I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear ideas, topics, maybe questions that you might have and I could explore here, so just help me do this together. The second thing is that on my webpage now, understandsuicide.com, you have a donate option, so you could donate to the podcast. It could really help me because it takes at least 8 to 10 hours for me to finish each of these episodes. It's a lot of work. I have to come up with the ideas for the themes and topics I want to cover, find someone to interview, you know, get in touch with them. Sometimes it takes months to get someone to say, yes, let's do it. And the editing and all of that costs. So if you find that this is helpful for you, I would appreciate your help. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast again. Thank you for being here and to also my YouTube channel. Today, I have a guest who, like so many of you and me included, she has been touched by suicide. She lost her brother, her dear brother, Adam, to suicide. He was very young and she ended up, you know, after years and years of soul searching, writing a book about it. It's called Standing on My Brother's Shoulders. It's a beautiful book. Her name is Tara. Tara is British. She's a firefighter, one of those heroes we hear about all the time. And she is an author. I'm so glad you're here, Tara. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Paula. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Tara, I have to say many times when I... um, when I interview an author I you know I get the book and I read passages of it and so many times I don't have time to read the whole thing but yours I just could not put down I kept okay. thinking okay I'll just skip the next the next chapter and look at something that's really relevant to the story but I just kept reading and reading at some point I just said okay I'm just going to finish this book <laughs> It's such a good book. Such a good book. Well written. So much soul searching. You really you you went into a digging search for who you are, not just you, but your parents, you know, where they came from, all the traumas involved in your family and the impact it had on you and on your brother, your sister. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Thank you, Paula. That's lovely. That's a really lovely way to introduce me. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, you're not in, you're British, but you're not in England anymore, right? You're not in Australia.
1: I am. I'm in Sydney, Australia now, and I've been here for 25 years now. It's been a long time. Yeah,
0: that's on my bucket list for sure. I would love to go. So many people say it's it's very much alike in terms of weather and the people. They're very warm, very much like in Brazil. Is that true? Have you been to Brazil at all?
1: I haven't been to Brazil, no, but I have heard that. And I think, yes, it is beautiful here. I live quite near the ocean and, yeah, it's just a, a lovely, lovely place to be. And I really found my home when I came here
0: hmm Yeah, we'll we'll go we'll go into that later on. But I would like to start where you started. Before you talked about your brother and the loss of your brother to suicide, you talked about your mom and your dad. So let's start with your dad. Can we talk a little bit about him? I mean, he struggled with mental illness. And as it often happens as a child, we don't know what's happening, right? We see it as a trait, a personality trait, or maybe there's something wrong with me because kids, we so often blame ourselves for what's happening. So who was your dad and why do you think it was important for you to actually understand him and understand his history?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to go back and, and kind of actually look at who he was and where he'd come from and his heritage. Um, and then to allow myself to understand how why he was the way that he was. Um, because as you said, as a child, I just remember him suffering from what i now know is quite a severe depression um although later on he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and, and then bipolar disorder um, but i remember he was he grew up in india and he left india when he was six years old um, and he came to the uk and his mother was also diagnosed with uh, paranoid schizophrenia later on um, and she was hospitalized for that illness when they were in england um, and he grew up during the war And there was various things that happened during that time that were really quite traumatic for him. Obviously, his mother's illness, but also there was a bomb that went off very close to where they lived. And so he's always been incredibly afraid of of loud noises and bangs and things. And he used to sort of cower and close his eyes when there was a thunderstorm or if we popped a balloon at home. Um, And again, I didn't understand. We thought it was quite funny. We used to laugh as children. But I remember him sitting, he always sat in the same chair and he absolutely loved to read. Our whole house was covered by books all over the place. But then I could tell when he was depressed because he wasn't even able to read and he was in his same chair, but he didn't have a book on his knee. And I Mm. used to try and climb onto his lap and go, dad, dad, and he'd be like, he'd close his eyes as if that was as if he didn't want me to be there and and I'd try and get him to give me a hug and and he'd say, not now, lovey, not now. And he'd screw up his eyes and it felt like I couldn't reach him. And I wanted Mm -hmm. so desperately to be able for him to wrap his arms around me and he just wasn't able to do that. And... As you say, I thought that it was my fault. And I found a diary entry that I'd written when I said, Dad's depressed. And I hate it when Dad's depressed because I always think that it's my fault. And later on as an adult, it took me a very, very long time to try and untangle that because, you know, as I was growing up, people would always say to me, Tara, stop saying sorry. And I go, sorry, and I would apologise for everything. Um, And I really realised that, you know, I did sort of grow up then thinking that everything was my fault and that mm. I had somehow caused my father's depression. So it was, it was very difficult and I didn't understand why he wasn't able to love me in the way that I wanted him to love me.
0: Wow, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to share with, with you something because when I was reading about your father, I thought so much about mine because there were so many similarities you talk about the books, and that's how my father was. I mean, he was an avid reader. He had thousands of book, books in, in, in our home, and he had this special room that was like his safe place where he would go to, and he had, I mean, books all around him, a lot of records because he loved classical music, and he listened, He would just go there on the weekends and stay there all day. And Ed, like you, I I would know when he was depressed too, by the way that he behaved within that room. I would look at him, and for him, you, you mentioned your dad would close his eyes, right? Like he wanted, he didn't want to be there. And my father, he would actually put his head down like this on the table, or his head, or hold his head with his hand. So I remember the, ge- the physical gesture that I would look at him, and I would not want to go into that room.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that has such a powerful impact on how you react to that as a child, you know, that you you do, you, I think as a child you do tend to think that everything's your and it's your fault and it's something that you're doing that's making him like that. And and that's mm-hmm. how that plays out in adulthood is just you know, incredibly powerful in how it changes our behavior and what our beliefs about ourselves.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and and also as you said how how we just bring it from our childhood into later on in life right and how we react as you said i kept saying i'm sorry i'm sorry and i'm sorry and you didn't even know you did it
1: yeah yeah exactly absolutely
0: and also i believe that uh, you mentioned that his brother was a professor of psychiatry
1: yeah so his um one of my dad's brothers his youngest brother um ended up becoming a psychiatrist in canada actually and again i didn't he did some really incredible work he was very well known there and it wasn't till Really when I started writing the book that I kind of clicked and realized why he had come to study what he did study in that you know, his mother had been suffering from schizophrenia and he did a lot of work with schizophrenia, um, and it was actually my uncle who was came over to England when our mother died and you know made sure that my father was admitted to hospital.
0: Yeah, and, and it just shows how, how impactful something like that. I mean he chose a career. In a way, maybe to find out what happened to his mother, right? To understand yeah, it.
1: I think so. And it was also something that he never, ever spoke about. Um, you know, and, and interestingly, you know, even when I wrote the book, he passed away some time ago now. But, you know, it was very much his wife was, it didn't want me to acknowledge that that, that had happened to her husband um, because he never spoke about it in all the work that he did, but he did incredible work for many, many years.
0: Wow. It, it just shows also the stigma regarding mental illness because, Absolutely. I mean, even him, I mean, he was a doctor. He wrote about it, never mentioned it his wife asked to not to mention it and I don't know if the same happened to you, but did you, did you like interview? Cause during my book I called a lot like his best friend and, uh, talked to his sister and tried to find some of, of my father's brothers to hear their perspective on what happened and why he did what he did and, and also to gain some, uh, some stories and learn a little bit about the past, my dad's past because he would never talk about it either. And I actually had huge surprises talking to these people. Things that really stunned me that I didn't know about my father or my grandfather for that matter. Things that he told us that were not true. Did it happen to you?
1: yeah it did i mean i had to do i tried to find um people to talk to and and actually because it had been such a long time since my brother had died you know many of those people were were no longer here you know had since died um so it, it i found it quite difficult um but i did go back to india and speaking to my my um father's other brother Um, So speaking to him was really helpful to try and piece together what had happened to my father and during their childhood. Um, And it was very interesting to see the difference in how they remembered things. So there were differences, which is the same for for me and my sister, and we have slightly different memories of how things happened. And I think, you know, especially with trauma, you know, we know that that affects your memory and and how you piece Mm -hmm. things together. So um, and my father has often said, you know, I'm sure I have many repressed memories. And and I think he absolutely does. There are many things that he can't remember and you know when i tried to ask him about it there was a lot that he couldn't couldn't access and and also it was very difficult because he he didn't want to speak about it and it was painful for him so it was quite difficult and i had to that's how i had to piece it piece it together really through speaking with my uncle um and you know trying to speak with my aunt in the uk who was my mother's brother's wife so so i had to it was difficult because there weren't that many people that i could speak to
0: yeah yeah, same thing with me, because so many had died too. I mean, his best friend from the past had died, but and the other thing that i I immediately connected with your father was the fear of of loud noises and explosions, because interestingly, me and my sister have the same thing, and we never found out where it comes from. It's so bad with my sister. And I, when I was reading a book, I said, oh my goodness, it's the same thing. Because I have a little bit more self-control. But my sister, she never liked going to kids' parties because of balloons. She cannot, she cannot sit like your father. She wouldn't sit anyway. She would always go into the room and look where the balloons were not. And she would sit there because she just gets too tense under balloons because of the fear of that it's going to explode. Isn't yeah, that amazing? Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. I That's was incredible. reading this, oh my goodness. But we never found out. We've been talking about this all our lives. We talked to our mom and we cannot figure out what happened because it's me and her. Me, it's more, it's more fireworks.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't
0: wow. like fireworks and it scares the hell out of me or any loud bangs or anything. But my, my sister, even balloons affect her.
1: Yeah, yeah. And isn't it, did you find it so helpful to actually piece it together by, by realising where that had come from?
0: I We don't know. We don't know where it comes from. The the only inkling that I have, uh, thinking back, is that my father had a collection of guns. And I remember and during the weekend, sometimes he would clean the guns and he would shoot. He would never let us be near him when he was doing that. He was very careful but maybe something associated to that with the, you know, with the shooting. I don't know, but we really don't remember anything. We don't have zero recollection.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the only thing I can associate with, but I can't really (laughs) guarantee anything. Yeah. So let's go on Tara. Let's talk about your mother. It sounds like your mother was the opposite of your father. And actually, uh thinking about this, and I don't know if you've reflected on this too, but maybe she had to right
1: yeah, had yeah, be, absolutely. as you
0: call as you said, the backbone of the family,
1: yeah, yeah, she was very much so, and I think you know when I you know tried to speak to my aunt to try and find out about their relationship and how they'd met and everything, and you know I think they were so opposite and um you know in looks in personality in in even in the things that they wanted really i think um but i think they had a very big physical attraction at the beginning and and it was you know that that was what got them together really i think was this big physical attraction and you know my dad when he when he wasn't depressed could be incredibly charismatic and and um my mum had been to india and she had a real fascination with india and then she met him and i think you know it was this huge physical attraction and and um they got married fairly quickly and and had my sister and i think probably before she realized You know, the depths of, I don't know whether she knew that he was suffering or had suffered from mental illness when they got married or um, or I don't know at what point she started to realise that he really was quite ill and it was going to be a very difficult relationship. And um, she just kept going, kept going and kept going and tried so hard to keep our family together through my father's illness and I think she was incredibly angry but she you know she would be fiery and shout and scream and my dad sort of held was actually now I realize very angry as well but he was very passive in his in mm-hmm. anger you know it was a real passive aggression um but my mother would vocalize it and scream and shout and um and my father would sit there very quietly going, oh Bridget I do wish you wouldn't Swear, and um, you know, and it, and that drove my mom even more nuts. Um, of but, course, you know, <laughs> that's what
0: you wanted to do,
1: right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it was a it was a fraught relationship, you know. Um, but I, I look back now, and I really think that you know it's very sad. Like much later on, you know, speaking to my sister about it, and she said that my mom had actually said to her, "Don't make the same mistake I made and marry the wrong man."
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, I didn't know that at the time because I was much younger, Um, but I think... Absolutely. Life it was so difficult for my mum, you know, when I looked, and I had no realisation. I just thought that she was scary and I was quite afraid mm-hmm. of her because she was so fiery and forthright and bold and, and busy. And um, she didn't seem to have time to kind of love us and nurture us. And, and I wanted that. And I guess because I was the youngest child, I, you know, I sort of feel like I was sort of in the way and, and there wasn't enough time for her to really love us although she did and you know those treasured little moments of when I remember her giving us a cuddle and feeling that softness in her but she just didn't seem to have time to show that very often
0: yeah and and then she got ill right with cancer you were what eight years old at the time
1: yeah I was eight when she got diagnosed with cancer Um, and again I don't I remember sort of going on holiday to my aunt and uncle's place and while she actually had her mastectomy and I knew that she, she had chemotherapy and obviously back then that was in the 80s. So so treatment of cancer was very different then. And, you know, I couldn't understand why she had to sew a little bit into her swimming costume to cover up where she'd had the mastectomy. And, you know, I remember going to visit her in hospital and, and really crucifying myself now for or after she died for some of my behaviour during that time. And I knew that she was ill, but I never thought that she was going to die. And I knew that people did die of cancer, but I thought that she was getting better and it was going to be fine. You know, and dad was sort of obviously really struggling as well at that time. So they both, what I really became aware of when I look back, and especially now that I teach mental health first aid and I have more understanding is that they both were struggling with huge illnesses. Um, you know, my mother's physical and my father's psychological, but the disability that those illnesses had or affected how they affected their relationship and their ability to work and the amount of pain they were in really They were quite comparable in terms of the disability that it created in both their lives
0: Of course. Yeah, and uh, you were talking about how uh, Guilty you felt because you didn't visit her in the hospital. I, I, I remember In the book you mentioned that you didn't go because you wanted to watch Dallas, right? yeah yeah i love that show too but uh you didn't go and then the next time you went you baked a cake for her and you went to the hospital and you said she never said anything but i saw the look of disappointment in her face and from that day on i knew i was selfish so it's the self-talk right it's
1: the self-talk that we build
0: and then we carry did you carry that for a long time
1: Absolutely. I carried that for, for so long, for forever. For and I even now, I still kind of struggle to believe that it's okay, that that I'm not selfish. And so it led me to really just, I felt I had to give everything all the time to everyone. And I couldn't, it wasn't okay to, to, to say, no, actually, I want this. And I think, you know, because both my mother and my father were struggling, that the subliminal messages was that it wasn't okay to say that I wanted anything. It wasn't okay to want anything. I had to just be good and be quiet. And I think that really suppressed my voice because that was all I knew was just be quiet, don't say anything and don't want for anything because you're selfish if you want for anything for you. Mm. And, and that really, really played out in my life, um, you know, certainly after my mother's death and, and for, for a very, very long time. And it was something that was very difficult to unpick and, and to actually have that belief like it's okay, it's okay to ask for what you want. Hey.
0: If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or My Name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. Mm-hmm. And you were so little. When, when she died, you were 13?
1: Yeah, I was 13 when she died. Um, and she had, she had a brief period of remission um, from her breast cancer. And then the cancer came back as uh, liver metastases. And then she became quite ill. And and then Mm -hmm. she passed away when I was 13 and my brother was 15 and my sister was 17.
0: I can't even imagine. So you were left with your father and actually he had a breakdown, right? Right after and he was hospitalized.
1: Yeah. So he, you know, up until that point, I only remember him suffering from quite a major depression. But after our mother died, he had quite a very... Severe kind of psychotic manic episode. So he started behaving as if that you know mum's death was the best thing that ever happened, and he started giving all his money mm. away and wanted to go out and eat in restaurants everywhere, and and was admitted to hospital quite quickly. And that was where he was given. I'm not quite sure whether he was at that point given a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or or um, schizoaffective disorder, but he remained in hospital for the best part of a year. And so really the three of us were, were left at home and obviously none of us were over the age of 18 and none of us knew how to grieve really and we had—we um, were going to be adopted um, all separately to families in the local area that we knew. Uh, but my aunt and my mother's brother, who was alive at that time but he's since passed, they really fought very hard and they were, actually had to go to court for us all to stay together, which again I didn't find out till many years later. But, you know, I, I so wished that our grief would somehow unite us and that we'd come together in our grief. But, um, you know, we really weren't able to do that. Um, and we all coped in our own ways as very young, young people. Um, and certainly now I look back, I can see how we all coped very differently. But it certainly impacted all of us.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure it was very hard then because. So did were you adopted Uh, together because you mentioned that your dad came back I think a year later and it, it seems that you were together after that
1: yeah, we, we actually ended up staying together. So because we weren't legally allowed to be staying in the house because we were all under the age of 18, we actually ended up renting a room in the house to, to, to a lodger that would just stay there because um, they were over 18. So it meant legally we could stay there. Um, but we used to go to dinner at our neighbor's house every night and I'd go up to another friend's house. And so that was how we got through that time. And then progressively dad would come out of hospital for brief periods, like just come home for the weekend,
0: at, mm-hmm. at times
1: and then gradually he started spending more and more time at home um, and my sister then went to university after that um, she had actually finished school she finished school and then um, was going to take a gap year but because you know our mother had died and there was no one to look after her she didn't actually really take that year and travel which again I didn't realize at the time what she'd given up t- to be with us yeah, um, of course. Yeah. you know and I think you know for, in our relationship that's took its toll as well. I mean, we 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 sort of we didn't. My sister and I were very very different. Whereas my brother and I really coped, but we were quite similar. And we, although we didn't speak about our grief, we really just had this deep understanding of each other and this deep, deep caring bond that was really unique and special. And I think he certainly cradled some of the pain that I felt um, just by being there. And I really looked to him to be the person that was gonna make me feel safe at a time when the world didn't really feel safe. I couldn't find anyone to love me really and support me except for him
0: hmm let's talk about adam and and his loss and i'm I'm sure all the all this grief i'm just i'm just thinking he had three young kids because that's what you were right trying to deal with grief with a father who was hospitalized and back then you didn't even understand what was going on and just trying to stay together i mean it, it's a huge toll for such young age
1: yeah, it it really was. And obviously, you know, you when you're young, you just don't have that emotional maturity to try and understand or process grief or, or understand mm-hmm. or certainly, you know, look to anyone else and look to my brother and understand what was going on in him. But, you know, he was... Um, so he was the middle child. He was 15 when our mother died. Um, and he was actually away on a, on a walking trip and had to be airlifted back um, to the hospital to come and see my mother before she died. But he was, you know, he was beautiful good-looking tall dark handsome and he had this beautiful sort of anglo-indian skin and all the girls wanted to be with him and they'd stop at the top of the road to watch him cycle by in the morning and and all the boys wanted to be like him and he was you know incredibly intelligent um and you know seeing some of his writing that he did before he died i just it still blows me away the you know how he could write at that age was such incredible depth and, and beautiful beautiful painful writing but but really amazing and i think you know what we didn't realize was how he was how much he was struggling with that grief and i guess you know for for men and you know particularly for young boys it's very very difficult to get in touch with your emotions and you know who at 15 what 15 year old kids or boys are going to want to talk about feelings or emotions or know how to talk about grief so I, i know when i went back to school you know nobody spoke to me and I'm sure that he would have had the same experience. And so I think that really just that grief really metastasized within him um, for many mm-hmm. years before any of us saw what was going on. And I think he felt this enormous pressure to succeed because my mother um, and father had both wanted him to go to Oxford University and he carried the weight of that very much so. And he really felt that he had to look after me and he had to look after everybody and he had to look after dad. and again, that he wasn't allowed to express his grief and couldn't find a way to express that. And I think that was so destructive for him.
0: Yes, and, and you have beautiful passages in the book that from his diaries, I believe, that you kept and you have some some of the letters that he wrote to you. And in one of them, uh, he was talking about his desire to be perfect, perfectionism, which we know that is such a huge... Pressure on someone. And as you said, he felt pressure to protect you. He felt pressure to go to Oxford. From what I understand, it was not something he wanted to do. And just so the listeners understand, it would be the equivalent of an American going to Harvard, right? The parents want that, but he didn't want it. And he went, and I just want to read something he wrote uh, about this. And he said, I'll tell you why, because I have lied all my life. I have cried all my life because I wasn't perfect and I couldn't accept it. So it just yeah. shows the kind of turmoil that he was experiencing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, even when you say those words, it just breaks my heart. It's like, you know, how, how, you know, how damaging that that and I call it in the book, I call it the curse of perfectionism. And I very, very much believe that. And it's such a destructive trait. And as you say, we know that there's, uh, you know, a strong correlation between perfectionism and suicide and, and, and mental illness as well. So, You know, I then much later found uh, Brené Brown's book, *The Gifts of Imperfection*, and you know it so resonated with me. And I thought, absolutely, absolutely, you know, it's if we could only accept that we none of us are perfect and it's okay, and there are so many gifts within that imperfection.
0: And also loneliness, right? When we talk about suicide and now with COVID and pandemic, everyone is talking about feeling lonely and the, you know the, how it affects you, how it affects your body. And, and he talks about that too. He wrote extensively about how lonely he felt at Oxford. He writes, one could die here and nobody would notice. God, I want some company. I want to see Joe and Ta, that's you, and Dad sweet little daddy i thought that was beautiful but again
1: it's painful to read Yeah, I think that was really when I read those words, that was really that little boy in him crying out for love, you know, and I think we all have our own little inner child that's screaming for love and and care and support. And, you know, I know I've worked very hard to find my little inner child, you know, and what they what I was searching for all that time. And I, you know, those words speak to how he was feeling about that of just someone to nurture and cuddle. And I think very much that's the loss of, of a mother and that nurturing sense that a mother gives you early on in life. Um, And that's what he was really searching for. And I think that that total sense of loss and isolation and loneliness, as you said, and you know, I know Mm -hmm. that I I do believe that, you know, a lot of suicide is is really that death by loneliness. And it's the the people that are around you, you know, it's that inner feeling of, I can't connect. And he spoke a lot about wanting to connect with people, but not being able to find a way to connect. And that he, that really accentuated his sense of isolation and loneliness.
0: When was the first time, Tyler, that you noticed that there was something wrong with him? You, the moment in the book that I can picture is when he came back from India. And he came in and you, you said, wow, that was not my brother there. You couldn't recognize him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I probably had some sense maybe before he went to India during that year, he had a gap year after he'd finished school and he traveled a bit in France and then in India. So I think I had some sense maybe before he left, but not really. It was, but when he, after he'd been away, when he came back, that was when it really hit me and he walked in and it was like this, he had this blank look about his face, you know, you could, you know, I could almost feel his energy and, it was like he was there but he wasn't there which really you know now i look back was that that's how it felt with my father and and i wanted so desperately to reach in and 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 hold him and and do something for him and help him and and i couldn't understand and you know he tried to brush it off and um he said he'd been you know searched at the airport because they thought he was because he was wearing indian clothes and you know, this woman had stopped as he was walking down the street on his way home from the airport, saying, Oh, I don't like the likes of you around here because he was had a backpack and was wearing these Indian clothes, you know. And, um, you know, and the irony was, you know, he was going to Oxford and, and he was, you know, a straight A student and, and all those things that people think are so important and, and that people mm-hmm. look up to. And yet, you know, he had there was this woman that had said those words to him, and and you know, they kept coming back to me after he died, thinking, You know, would that if you know would it have been different i mean i realize now that you know it it wouldn't have made any difference i'm sure but but all of those things i think played out and you know i just was so desperately worried about him and i had this awful sense of foreboding but i didn't really know what it was and i certainly never thought about suicide
0: it never crossed your mind back then that he was thinking about suicide
1: no i i never i don't know whether i'd ever even registered i must have heard about suicide but i certainly never had i never made the connection there i knew i was worried about him and i was desperately worried about him and i kept telling him he didn't have to go to oxford and that he could he could you know take another year off and and go and study english literature instead of chemistry and he could go to edinburgh um, university which is where our aunt was and and where i ended up going but i think he had felt this incredible sense of duty to Mm -hmm. to his mother's wishes and to our father that he had to go there
0: Hmm. What happened then? What do you think was the breaking point for him?
1: I think there had been, now I look back and obviously understanding a lot more than I did then about suicide, I think there had been many, many things that had been building up for a long period of time and certainly around the grief around my mother really I think was a huge thing and the loss of my mother and and my father's illness as well and you know just finding it so difficult to and frustrating and and you know with my father it was very difficult to be around um so i think that built up but i think going to oxford you know and then coming back from india and seeing all the hardship in the world there and so many people suffering and, and trying to make sense of then coming back and going straight to Oxford university, which is one of the most elitist kind of institutions in the world. in in terms of, you know, full of privileged people and, and, and he had an incredible sense of social justice for somebody so young and to go ha- how can I, how can I be in this world when there are so many people in the world in India with nothing and, and, and can't even drink clean water and have no clothes on their back. And and Mm -hmm. then here am I in this institution, um, surrounded by all these privileged people and, and obviously immense pressure there, um, academically in the amount of work, um, and going to a university, not knowing anybody and, you know, feeling even more isolated because people don't know you, they don't know their history and you can't just, you know connect with people and you know he had so much going on inside him and he was a very deep thinker and and i think that can be isolating too certainly at that age so i think there were many many things that that, that you know sort of all built up over time um and the tipping point i think was very much you know going to oxford university because he was in his first term at oxford um, when he died
0: mm-hmm. and how old was he when he died
1: Uh, He had just turned twenty, so he came back from India. So young. Yeah, so he was he was very very young.
0: Do you have recollections? Because I remember regarding your mom, you say that you don't even remember who told you. You don't remember the day. There are a lot of as you. As you mentioned before, trauma does that, you know, a lot of memory gaps when, when it comes to your mother's death. Is it the same with your brother? Do you remember what you felt and what you went through the immediate days afterwards?
1: I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing because I did struggle so much to remember events around my mother's death. I mean, obviously, I was quite, quite a lot younger. But, you know, with my brother's death, I actually do remember I mean, I'm sure there are things that I don't, but I remember the the just unimaginable pain. I remember, you know, there was so much I remember in in some ways every single second, um, you know, yeah. and this period of, of just intense, intense pain and then finding this huge buildup in, in the ensuing days where I would start to feel like I was being crushed and, and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't Function in the world, and I couldn't be in the world. But I and I not knowing how to cope, and just needing something, and then having this huge outpouring of, of grief, and really screaming and howling, and and that was the release, if you like. And and you know, in in a way, I would feel better when it was coming out. But the times when I wasn't actually you know overtly crying were, were really horrendous, um and it was just struggling to get by from second to second, really. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think helped you then with your grief?
1: I think my aunt without a doubt. So my, um, my mother's brother's wife, as I said, my aunt Margaret, you know, she, she was very close to my brother as well. And she really tried to look after us. Her husband, my mother's brother had died a few years before and, you know, just, she was the one person that I could turn to. And she really, really, you know, I don't think I would have survived without her. Um, you know, she just sat with me in my grief and I think, that there are so few people that are able to do that and the intensity of that pain is just overwhelming for many, many people to be around. And, you know, I now think, you know, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to anybody who's grieving is just to be with them and hold their space and hold their grief and allow them to grieve in any way that they need to. But I, I really found that that meant most people weren't able to do that, and that was quite that was made the grief even harder um, and mm-hmm. and even more isolating. But she just allowed me to to stay alive and move forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned there's a passage in your book, and you talk about being being fearful that you would be next. You said, yeah. Well, my dad is ill. Was ill, you know, psychiatric hospital he killed himself. What if I'm next?
1: Yeah. And that was something, you know, probably what my biggest fear in life, I think, you know, was that I would become like my father or, or, or do what my brother had done. And and I was terrified of that. Um, and I started having panic attacks. I'd never had a panic attack before, and I didn't know what a panic attack was. And, you know, I would get this, like, it felt like a vice across my chest and i couldn't breathe and my throat would close over and i start sweating and i'd have this sense that i wasn't really in the world and for me that was absolutely petrifying because i thought it meant that i was going crazy and and that i was going to become like my my father and i think it was so layered and so weighted because i think everybody around me was frightened that i would do what my brother had done too and so Mm -hmm. that added another layer so i was frightened of it but they were frightened too and yeah. so that really was so destructive in, in that so much fear and, and that fear, you know, I lived in fear for, for so long, um, and fear that I would, you know, become like my father or, or that I would do what my, my brother had done. And it took me many, many years to, to come to terms with that and to realize that I didn't, I didn't want to die. Um, you know, and as I said, when I wrote to a friend of mine, I said, you know, I I, it was about six months after um, my brother had died. And I said, you know, I don't want to die, but I don't know how to live. And oh, and that was exactly how it felt to me.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and when did you realize I should write about this?
1: Um, you know, I found his diaries. Um, I can't remember how long after he died, but I always had them with me. Um, and I brought them with me to Australia and I always knew I would do something with, him, with them. And I really... Uh, originally it was really I wanted to give him a voice for for his life and his pain and to bring some meaning to his life because his diaries were very much written as if he wanted them to be read because he would write things like if anyone should ever read this Mm -hmm. Um, so so they certainly weren't written in a way that it was like he never wanted anyone to see them so I knew I would do something with them and it was only really in 2009 that a few things happened in my life um, that made me realize that I wanted to start writing and that it was my time and originally it then morphed into kind of me writing my life story down and becoming my voice I think and it was and then starting to integrate his voice and my voice um, and it sort of Uh, naturally and and not intentionally became a book. Um, But I think a lot of it in the events in my life that led to me writing the book, I I had become a firefighter and, and I went to a call to a suicide as a firefighter and I had a really visceral physical reaction to that where I felt like I was going to vomit. And um, I had a friend who had attempted suicide and had written a heartbreaking letter about her suicide attempt. And that really Mm. affected me. And then I had the breakdown of a short relationship and I couldn't understand why my grief around losing that relationship, because it was only really quite short, you know, was so intense. Um, And I started to write as a way to process that grief. And and as I was writing, I realised that I was actually grieving for my brother as well. And that somehow that loss of that relationship had tapped into the grief around my brother. And and that was why it was so intense. And so I wrote a lot then just for me to process. And that then became part of the book.
0: Hmm. You know, you're talking now and I immediately went back um, when when I ended the relationship, before I came here too, it was a long, long relationship. And I was like you, I was grieving. It was just beyond comprehensible pain. And I decided to go back to therapy. And I only went for three, because I've done therapy many, many years. And I went for only three sessions. And I didn't notice this. I mean, it was a therapist who pointed that out to me at the end. And uh, on the first day, I talked and cried, talked and cried. Second, on the third day, I said, you know, thank you very much. I, I thanked her and she said, well, thank you, Paolo. but I want to tell you something. You came here to grieve. On the first day, you only talked about the relationship you just lost. On the second day, you only talked about your, about your brother. Uh, he died at 25, 26. And on the third day, you only talked about your father. So I'm glad you came. And I didn't notice. I was, again, it was all the grief together and only the three important men in my life. And I just needed to grieve them all together. So I thought that was so interesting. Now you're talking about it just brought it back to me. And how interconnected pain is, right? We don't. Yeah, absolutely. We think we're, the pain is related to this, but it comes from way back,
1: right? Absolutely. And I remember one of the really clear moments I had was waking up in the middle of the night at some point and realizing it was the same pain. You know, mm. it was the same old pain and realizing this something came over me when I suddenly realized that it was about all the old pain. And mm. somehow that relationship had symbolized so much of that. And, and I hadn't realized how much I'd been holding.
0: Wow. Tara, I'm, I'm sure your book was very healing for you. Writing was very healing for you. And I'm sure my listeners, I will have a link to your book on my notes so they can get it because I'm sure it will help so many people. And I want to finish the interview just reading a passage from your book because I loved it. You say, now, whenever a wave of grief sweeps over me, I look on it as an opportunity, a chance to peel back another layer so I may get closer to my true self. So I hope you, you get that one day. And if not, keep searching because that's, that's the most important thing, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And you know, what, what is incredible for me is that I, you know, I have, um, I've reached that place where I can live my truth and and I feel that and it took many years of lots of work and therapy, um, but I would and really encourage anybody who's listening to who might be struggling to really keep going on that journey, keep going on that journey, keep finding the right support and the right people in the right ways to Look into yourself and your pain and be able to hold that and I think we all need support to do that from the right people and keep looking for those right people and those right types of therapy and i 've you know had three different therapists over seventeen years, but I think you know really now I very very much feel that I have reached a point in my life where I have, I'm able to speak my truth and be the person that I want to be. And I've fought with that so long, for so many years, but I really now see what those wounds have given me. Um, And I used to want to get rid of those wounds. I thought if I can just get married and have children, it will prove that I'm fixed and I'll be better. Mm. And that was my sign and and it didn't happen. And now I really don't want to get rid of those wounds. I just hold them much more gently and I see what they've given me and how they've guided me and they add a real richness to the tapestry of my life. And I think when you have those darker hues in your tapestry, they really also make the colours brighter. And I see what I'm able to give to the world through my experiences. And I see my path and I very much feel that I'm living true to that now, which I didn't for a long time. And so I really hope that anybody listening to this can you know, take something from that and realize that it is possible to live the life that you want and and become the person that you want to be. And in a way, I'm only able to do that because of the intense struggle that I had to make peace with what had happened to me. And it's in a way, it's the depths And the extent of that struggle that has given me the growth that I now feel.
0: Mm -hmm. And thank you. And thank you for writing the book. Oh, thank you. Have a good day. It's so early right now in Australia. Just so the listener knows, poor thing. She gave me this interview at 5am in the morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's my pleasure, Paula. And thank you for all the work you do. I think it's incredible. And I think it has such power to, to help and heal so many people. So thank you for the work that you do.
0: Thank you, thank you for acknowledging.
1: <laughs> no, it's my pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, Please consider contacting Paula through her website understandsuicide.com